you're, you're thinking, what do I do? What do I do? Yeah, work for a corporation, see what it's like, learn a lot, learn everything you possibly can. And then if you start a business, know that it won't be easy, but think of Donna. <laughs> if she can do it, anyone can. And yeah. that's absolutely true. Without college, without money, without connections, you'll make them, you will. And if you're willing to put in the time and get an education, become an expert at whatever it is that you do, you can do that. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and today's guest is Donna Sawyers. Donna is the owner of Donna Sawyers Fabulous Furs, a luxury faux fur brand. Donna harnessed her passion for cruelty-free fashion and creative excellence to grow her brand from making her own faux fur coat in her basement to an internationally renowned, successful brand. Her company now has customers in 46 countries and is sold in over 4,000 high-end retail stores. Her furs can be found in Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, Nordstrom, and other luxury boutiques and hotels throughout the country. Fabulous furs have appeared on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, The Today Show, Miss USA Universe, the View, CSI Las Vegas, Gossip Girl, and many other TV shows. Donna has been profiled in People Magazine and twice in the Wall Street Journal and honored for community service by countless organizations. Donna and Fabulous Furs continue to be leaders in the faux fur industry. I'm so excited to have her on the show today, and I know you will love this episode. So Donna, welcome to The In Factor. Rebecca, I'm so thrilled to be here. We go way back. Go yes, way we back. do. We, we do. It's, it's a real pleasure to have you because, as you said, we've known each other for a number of years, and I've had the distinct pleasure of watching you build an amazing business. You were already in business and successful when I first met you probably a dozen or maybe 15 years ago. I know that you're wildly successful on entrepreneur and female business leader, and you've been a wonderful role model. We were just talking before the show how you were one of the first employers of my daughter there in Cincinnati when we lived there in Northern Kentucky. I've also heard your story many times, and I've also used it in my classes many times because it's just such an amazing trajectory that your business has taken as the founder and the brains behind Donna Sawyer's Fabulous Furs and other businesses along the way, which we were just talking about before the show, your company is now sold in 46 countries and over 4,000 high-end stores like Neiman Marcus, Saks, Nordstrom. You and your products are a real amazing story. And one of the things I love to do on this show is kind of go back to the beginning and tell our readers how you got to this point. So can you talk about how your entrepreneurial journey got started? Oh, it's my favorite subject. <laughs> and, and, you know, first thing I have to say is no one could be more surprised than I by what success we've had. But of course, success is measured by different people in different ways. You know, compared to Bill Gates, you know, I'm this big. 
but it's plenty for me and I love every minute of it. But I, I have to say, and we're all fake fur. We're first for animal lovers. We're all faux, all fake. So we're not animal fur. But I start with, I grew up in a very poor family in Northern Kentucky. And I was blessed to have a grandma who taught me how to sew. And that was a good thing because I always was very fussy about clothing. And I, I started making my own clothes when I was seven. And I was lucky enough to have a mom who allowed me to go out in public and the stuff that I made. And <laughs> I got a job when I was 13 selling clothing. And I didn't do it for fun. I needed the money. And so I, my parents had a wonderful work ethic and passed it along to me. And now 32 years later, I haven't stopped working since I started Fabulous Furs at the age of 44. But because I was from a very poor family, I learned how to sew and I sewed very well because my grandma did alterations on couture clothing. So I wrote a letter to the editor of the Cincinnati Inquirer. They had a sewing column that I would always cringe when I heard or read it. And I said, your sewing column is so awful. Even I could do a better column. And they said, they sent me a letter and said, send us six samples. We agree. It's horrible. And so I, I was dumbfounded and wasn't sure I had six good ideas, but I did. And I had never written anything except letters to the editor. And I now have a newspaper column. And I mean, it was like $25 a week or some horrible thing. And I said, okay, I've got to get syndicated. So I worked on that process. That means maybe I could be in 250 newspapers because back in the 70s, Newspapers were our mode of communications. It was a big deal. Mm -hmm. So I became syndicated. And then cable TV comes along and they need women's programming. And I was a sewing expert. And I found myself with a national TV cable show. And I have to go to New York to do my show. And I had never been to New York in my entire life. And I go to New York and I see that Every woman in the entire city is full length fur, head to toe. And so I said, I'm not going back to New York till I have my full length mink coat. And of course, I had to make one because I didn't, we didn't have like $10,000 to put into a coat. So I made one out of fabric, out of faux fur, and it was gorgeous and it stopped traffic and restaurants wouldn't check my coat because they couldn't take responsibility for a coat so beautiful. So after five years, I've now got some cash. I've now earned a nice amount of money and I had saved up unbeknownst to my husband, $5,000. And on a given day, I was in my car on my way to turn in my columns because this was pre-internet and I'm gonna stop and buy myself a full length mink coat after I turn in the columns, and I am so excited. I can't wait. My husband will fall over when I walk in in a mink coat, and that would be so unlike me because we share everything. But anyway, as I'm driving along the expressway to the first salon, Paul Harvey, a news broadcaster, comes into my car and is describing kittens being skinned alive by a London toy manufacturer and turned into mink teddy bears. 
And of course, I think, and I'm about to buy a full-length kitty coat. What kind of person would do such a horrible thing? So I said, I can't, I can't buy my coat. I can't. I will start a fake fur coat kit business, a sewing kit business. I will sell everyone who ever wanted a full-length mink one of my sewing kits. And so I did. I took that $5,000. And of course, I've eliminated most of the world because who would have the think they had the sewing skills to make, to sew? <laughs> like all men, I've canceled out that part of the population. But at any rate, so my first year in business, I'm now 44. My first year in business in 1989, I did $300,000 in revenue. And Rebecca, I would say that's the equivalent of a million dollars now, today's dollars. And I mean, that got everyone's attention. And I'm now, wow, this is amazing. I'm doing it out of my basement. And now I've got to up the inventory. I'm selling like crazy. I work almost all night rolling these kits and doing what I do and doing the mail orders. And then people started calling. I was the subject of a newspaper story in the San Francisco Chronicle. I didn't even know they wrote it. I was too busy working. And it was a call from Loretta Swit, who was like the most popular TV star because she was on MASH. (laughs) And she wanted one of our coats. And she said, I don't know how to sew. I'm sure you know someone who does. And I said, I'll turn it over to the ready to wear department and we'll get it out tomorrow. And so, of course, that night I made Loretta Switz coat in my kitchen and sent it out. I could sew very fast and I was learning efficiencies and so on. And she started showing it around Hollywood. And that was a huge lift. And now it was 1989. And then into the 90s, China began sending cheap clothing into this country. Mm -hmm. Sewing took a nosedive. People did not want kits. They wanted finished product. I couldn't sew fast enough. (laughs) And now I started recruiting people to help me sew, help me sew. So I'll fast forward today. We're in a 110,000 square foot building in Northern Kentucky, which is right. I can see Cincinnati out my window. We have a 110,000 square foot building and upstairs, we have about 40 people manning our workroom. And thank God, I don't have to make everything that we send out because we've got a lot of people sewing on power machines mm-hmm. who do a heck of a lot better job than I did. So it, it was just, I started out as a sewing kit, one product and became something far different than I ever, ever envisioned. And I think that's a a message that just because you start with one product doesn't mean that you can't reinvent yourself every single year. You know, Donna, I love your story because it is such a great story of the ability to recognize opportunities, which I, I think is, you know, above everything else is probably one of the characteristics of an entrepreneurial mindset. But also the other part of your story that I love is that you were willing to do the hard work that it required. And so how many years from sort of getting started? I mean, you you started building the skills you needed for this since you were 12 years old, right? Is that what you I said? Arrived, you- I arrived knowing nothing, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> 
though, Rebecca, I did not go to college. College was not an option. We didn't have the money. I wouldn't have been able to have a room or whatever. So I, I just, I think every job I had, which was always in an office or selling or writing or something, every job I had from the time I was 12 prepared me for doing this because today, 32 years later, since I started Fabulous First, I write all the copy for the internet and that's considerable. Right. And so those writing skills, I didn't know how to write. But man, if you write a newspaper column once a week, you will learn quickly. Mm -hmm. And television, I started doing little two-minute segments on television before cable when they would have mm, things of interest, like a little sewing spot on some morning show, a local show. Oh, yes, Donna, the sewing expert. She can tell you how to make placemats. Mm -hmm. So I guess everything I did prepared me for this. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a really good message in that, especially for a lot of the young entrepreneurs who who have a vision, but they don't know how to get there. You just kind of dove in, right? And just took it one step at a time and learned along the way. It's been a learning process, the entire journey. I will learn a lot today that I'll use this afternoon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And you better not stop. I hear people talk about binge watching television, and I think, what are you wasting your time on? Is it worthy of you? Probably not. I mean, I read the Wall Street Journal for an education, mm-hmm. or I'd listen to a business channel. Why waste your time on some reality show? But to each his own. To each well, his own. But, you know, that's a very interesting part of the whole creative process, because the creative process requires paying attention to what's going on around you. So that, you know, it's interesting that you identify that pivotal moment when you heard that message on the radio. And I, I claim that's divine intervention because I mean, don't you hear about all these children being down in Mexico, trying to cross the border alone and they're 10 years old. I didn't go down and start an orphanage or, you know, mm-hmm. that I chose that. I have no idea why, except divine intervention, because that was just a moment in time. Yeah. Well, I think it's really, there's a great message in that. So your your business, you know, and your idea for your business originally started as you were an expert in the field, in the area of sewing. And so you, you, you know, it was partly to sew your own clothing that you started sewing. So kind of out of necessity, but but you figured out that there was this opportunity for faux fur. And how has that journey been? Because when you first started in the faux fur space, it wasn't quite the context, the environment wasn't where it is today, which is very accepting and very supportive. Did you ever have struggles along the way with that? And how how did that go? Because now everybody (laughs) understands the importance of it, but probably not back in the 80s when you first started this. Rebecca, you're the master of understatement. Fofur had the reputation of wearing a bathroom rug. It was just awful. And when I started, people would say, are you kidding? Why? Oh, that, oh, that is horrible. Well, it wasn't. It was their perception of it. Mm -hmm. And, And I just could, I've always been a cat lover and I just couldn't think of, I'd never put animal fur in the context of my own cats. Would, what if somebody stole our cats and passed them off as mink teddy bears? And I would just be 
horrified. And the fur industry is about as horrendous as you can get. At the same time, it's not my right to tell people what to wear. I'm here to offer a luxurious alternative so that when you get a fabulous fur, you'll feel as if you trade it up, that you have something that's just as warm, some beautiful, luxurious, something that even Oprah called the finest, you know, her favorite thing, something that Saks, that Neiman sells. And you would say, wow, this is fabulous. And I don't have to pay the price of a car for this coat. It's $300 or $500. Mm-hmm. So, so there were, it was, a, to me, it was a very easy transition to go. So I was born loving fur. I love fur, but not at the expense of, you know, being so horrible to animals. It's just wrong in my estimation. Mm-hmm. Well, and I can say one of the things, as you know, now I used to live there in Cincinnati where I had plenty of opportunity to wear faux fur. <laughs> but now in Florida, I can say your products are wonderful. And that's probably the one one thing I still have them hanging in my closet, the ones that oh. I know you you gave me one, one of my first ones. And then my husband bought me one and I have some beautiful products of yours, but I don't get to wear much in Florida. <laughs> but you know, it can still get cold. And I do, I do wear them traveling. So one of the fun things about your product is that you mentioned Loretta Swit of MASH fame, but you've had a lot of other celebrities and a lot of run-ins with celebrities with your faux fur. Could you talk about that a little bit? That's always kind of fun. Well, I mentioned we were Oprah's favorite thing to the extent that she wore us on the cover. And this, it was the Oprah effect. And it was just amazing, just amazing. So that was quite wonderful. But something even more, well, just about as astounding, you know, the rock, iconic rock group Kiss. Mm -hmm. And you've probably heard of Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, etc., they're customers. I didn't know that. They just quietly buy online. And I didn't know that. Their manager called, you know, they tour. They're on their endless last tour. And they were playing in Lexington, Kentucky, which is a 60-minute car drive. Mm-hmm. Their manager called on a February day and said, hey, the guys want to come up and shop. We're coming by jet because we have a concert at Rupp Arena on that particular night, they want to come and shop. And we said, what? (laughs) (laughs) They're coming by jet. They, do they know they could drive faster than the jet and then limo over from the private airport, Lunkin in Cincinnati, whatever. Good, good. And then of course, as chance would have it, that was the day that, or that was the week that we were refurbing our showroom. It was scheduled for demolition the day before they were supposed to come and shop. Stop everything. And all the merchandise, we had removed all the merchandise. And that's, it's a big, like 5,000 square feet. Okay, (laughs) re-merge. Get the product back in. And they're coming, they're coming. And so nine of them came, arrived in a limo, their jet having landed like 20 minutes away. And... They shopped and shopped and shopped, and they spent about $5,000, and that was fabulous. But then Paul Stanley, who's kind of the brains of the operation, he's a Jewish boy from Brooklyn who writes all their music and 
I think he's a, I, I read his bio. He's an amazing person. And he turned around and said, why don't all of you come to the concert tonight? And really? Oh, yeah. And, and so they, they put us backstage, gave us parking passes to park with the equipment trucks so that we could get in and out real quick and get the kids back to school or back home in time to go to school. school. Uh-huh. And front row seats, drinks, appetizers, mm-hmm. backstage passes. I was in Florida, so I wasn't there. I only lived it vicariously through all the text and pictures that they sent. But as divine intervention would have it, they're performing in Dayton, September 2nd. I'm going, by All right. (laughs) (laughs) So so the fact that kids, they're our customers, and they arrived in our first. And, oh, my Lord, you'll see this soon. Paul Stanley, he, for kids, or for PETA, he's wearing one of our coats. I'd rather wear fabulous furs than go naked, or some kind of a thing for PETA. It hasn't broken yet, but, I mean... All these things happen, and I don't know where they come from, but I, I'm very grateful. Well, you know, it goes back to, I think, both of the things we talked about, having a fabulous product and hard work and being willing to take advantage of those opportunities. I mean, you had, you know, of course, who wouldn't read, you know, put everything back and set everything back up so that they could come in and, and do their shopping experience. But you just have to be ready to take advantage of those, right? May I show you one? More? Yes. This is the Neiman Marcus Christmas book. A person pays $15 to get this. In the yes. Book. They don't send it to just anyone. So I sent my $15 because that is our, can you see that that's yes. a yes. fur covered ice scraper and it's $39. We did this custom for Neiman Marcus. They gave it two pages in their Christmas book in the opening spread. That's awesome. I don't know how these things happen, but I'm so thankful. I remember that product. I think you gave me one of those. And and I had to scrape my car. (laughs) We've sold hundreds of thousands of them. It's a brilliant product. It's smart. It works. And, And we make them like crazy right upstairs. Now, do you remember, where did the idea for that come from? Some guy called me up and said, Donna, I worked at this place and they had a nice scraper, N-I-C-E, like N apostrophe Uh I-C-E. I said, yeah, we could probably make those. I can figure that out. I'll just make a few and get it done. And by golly, that's a product right there. And we, we made it better. We kind of improvised. And right. he was just a man on the street. And lots of people like that come forward and say, Donna, have you ever done this? Or have you ever thought of getting on QVC? And I say, I call QVC once a week for five years, and it ain't happening yet. And he said, well, I've got somebody you can call. I, she'll help you out. And by golly, we got on QVC. And so we signed a contract and you didn't ask about this, but I think after maybe three or four years, we were wildly successful on QVC. And then we said, if we're lucky, we'll never be on QVC again because they treat, they don't treat their suppliers very well. 
Mm-hmm. I'll suffice it to say. Well, I know it's <laughs> tough. I know it can goodbye, be tough. Goodbye, QVC. Well, <laughs> good. But so now we are on Shop HQ, and that's a smaller network. We respect one another. We mm-hmm. work together. And we've been on there for maybe seven years. They're the third largest shopping network in the country. We're one of their biggest suppliers. suppliers and huh? that's it's a partnership, not a use and abuse. Mm-hmm. Enough said. And then that people in Australia, they watch what goes on in this country. We've been on the number one shopping network in Australia since 2016. That means I fly back and forth to be on live in Sydney. And after about six trips, it gets wearing. I'm sure. I'm <laughs> sure. Thankfully, one of the blessings of COVID was I get to do it by Skype <laughs> and it works fine. We're selling more than ever. So that's wonderful. There are hidden little, you know, blessings behind these dreadful things. That's true. And, you know, I think that the pandemic taught us all a lot and every business was impacted in different ways. Some had a very tough time, but I'm assuming through the pandemic, you did fine, but, but has it affected the fact that more people are working from home? Do you see any impact in your products? All good. All All good. good. Mm -hmm. All good. Because people wanted to nest and stay cozy and warm Mm -hmm. and our fur rows furnish that. And we started making masks when St. Elizabeth Hospital called and said, Donna, have you ever made a mask? And I said, no, but I'll try. And we don't have the goods because you need something that's worth to use it in a hospital. It has to be CDC requirements, which is Mm -hmm. 100% cotton. We don't have that. But Lord, I scrambled and found we started cutting up sheets And then from the hotel and then scrambling to buy 100% cotton anywhere we could before all the warehouses shut down. I mean, it was just insanity, just Mm -hmm. insanity. Mm -hmm. But what it did on the positive note, it allowed us to become essential workers. Those who wanted to sew upstairs, they came in and made masks and they could work on their own schedule because their kids aren't going to school. So We'll all come in when we can. And, you know, you just get through it. It Mm -hmm. it was just a very strange time. Just while we're on that topic, what kind of changes do you see for your workforce in this post-pandemic? Is it going to go back to pre-pandemic norm? Or do you think there are changes that have been made? You mentioned the Australia example as one change Mm -hmm. that'll probably Mm -hmm stick around. Any others that you see? Yes. Oh, tremendous, tremendous. We want to have wholesale accounts. We have 4,000, but we can always have more. And so we go to about 20 trade shows a year. A trade show is where you go set up your booth. You'll stand in high heels for maybe three, four days, solid, talking to people, trying to introduce them to a new partner. And sometimes the shows are very productive and you gain, well, a really great, or maybe you get, you know, 200 new clients, maybe you get 20 and you spend thousands and thousands to send five people to live in New York for five days because you've got the teardown and the setup and the 
the airfare. Mm-hmm. Those shows are very, very costly and very physically wearing. They were all shut down. So we said, okay, we will pivot. We will do personal one-on-one appointments virtually. Mm-hmm. And so we began doing Zoom calls. And I'm, I'm seated in our merchandise room. Mm-hmm. It's like a giant booth at a trade show. Mm-hmm. And we can show you in the comfort of your office or your home, you didn't have to travel to New York, to Las Vegas or Houston. You get to do it without spending $5,000 on travel. And it's exhausting. You can do this in an hour and see all the merchandise and feel as if you really are very well educated about what we're offering and face-to-face. So that's been huge because we were all wearing ourselves out going to mm-hmm. trade shows. Mm-hmm. So that, that's been a really wonderful. That's a great show. example. I'm on the board of Marine Max, which is the world's largest luxury boat retailer. And How we just, fun. <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting, but one of the, and fun, but one of the changes that we saw is, is also in boat shows, which are also very costly and time consuming and probably not as productive as a one-on-one kind of selling experience, which could be done now virtually, because, you know, we've all come a long way in the last year with our ability to use technology. So that's a great example. And I think a lot of companies are going to come, there are a lot of things that we've learned that we'll be able to keep, but let's go back a little bit more to, I want to talk a little bit more about how you grew your company, because it's clear, as I said, this company has just skyrocketed in growth. But it didn't happen overnight, obviously. It took a lot of work. Could you talk a little bit about the process from, you know, once you figured out that you wanted to sell these, that you were going to sell manufactured products Mm -hmm. as opposed to Mm -hmm. kits, and then Mm -hmm. scaling it up now to the size that it is now. Could you talk just a little bit about your philosophy about scaling a business? Well, it's painful. And I don't think it's ever not painful. You know, I've heard people say, oh, I want to own a business so I can be my own boss, which is (laughs) just wait, (laughs) just wait. You will not be getting benefits from somebody who, you know, was taking care of you. It was one step at a time and one from one horrible failure to another to say, wow, like this goes way back to 2000. September 11th, 2001, Mm -hmm. we had put 1 million catalogs in the mail. We had ramped up our staff to handle the thousands and thousands of phone calls and mail orders that those catalogs would generate. So you don't do something like that without a lot of planning and lay in the inventory, have the people train so that they can fill the orders. If the orders come in today, we want to ship today or tomorrow. So all those things, add phone lines, et cetera. And and then 9-11 hit. And we could have thrown those catalogs down the sewer and they would have been just as productive. Our phones didn't ring. Everybody was worried, when is the next bomb going to hit? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, it was horrible. And it wasn't just us. It was the whole country was in a malaise that was like COVID, very similar, actually. And we've got this huge inventory, and we can't pay people. We don't have 
any revenue coming in because nobody's buying anything. We only owe money. We owe lots and lots of money. So I decided we would have a 50% off sale and we would have to do it like with a postcard mailing and that produced some money, but we would all have to, the, like the, the skeleton staff of six, we would answer phones all day, take orders. And then at five o'clock, go to the warehouse, start shipping, start shipping, start shipping. And we hung on by our fingernails as best we could, just squeaking by. Like how many times I say, I can't make payroll, now what? But it was just a gut-wrenching time, and not just for us, but for the entire world. And then you get through it, and you look at each other and say, I don't believe it, but we're all still here. Mm-hmm. And, and so I remember the next fall, people, Donna, when are you having your half-price sale? Never, <laughs> ever. <laughs> we will never be doing that again. Thank you. Sorry. So all those things, all those things. Or the post office loses your, why didn't the catalogs get into the mail? They're a month late, but you missed the Christmas window. You know, just, oh, yes. It's the entrepreneurial lament. It's what it's like to be an entrepreneur. My problems are not high tech until you and I, I'm on the third computer this morning, third laptop. We couldn't make the darn thing connect. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) There are days like that. There are days. There are days. We'll keep going. Yeah. Well, that's. Donna, don't worry about it. Come on. Well, but you're right. You know, it took you three, but you didn't give up after the first one didn't work or the second one didn't work. And I'm sure that's the story, you know, when entrepreneurs have to learn to execute past failure, successful entrepreneurs. So at, at any one point in time, it sounds like there could have been times when you and I might have had a conversation and you would have said, I don't know if we're going to make it. And I don't know if I can Maybe about 50. (laughs) So what, tell me, what is it, what kind of, you know, how do you, I think as it happens more and more, you start to build a certain sort of wisdom about it. But in the early stages, when those things were happening, what did you, what kind of, what strategy did you use to help yourself keep going and start to build the resilience that is so necessary in entrepreneurship? Well, I was blessed with a wonderful husband. I married my first husband a very long time ago, many decades ago, and we're still married. And he's an entrepreneur as well. So we always thought very similarly. He's not a part of my business and I'm not his, but we could always be sounding boards for one another. And he would Somehow when I was up and he was down, I would say, yes, I can come up with 50,000 if that's what you need. Sure. And so there were times when I would say, Jim, you know, have you got like half a million dollars? Because I'm going to need it. I don't know what. I don't know what. And he, he was really smart about leveraging. And I'm not sure banks, well, yeah, finance is getting easier these days with you know, almost 2% interest and so on, all kinds of screwy deals. But we were always leveraged to the hilt that we were always one (laughs) payment away from imploding. And both of us had the stomach for that. And I was always, and he is too, of the mind that 
We're not here to dabble. We're all in. We will sell our house. We did once sell our house and we sold our car because he had three partners who went bankrupt and we are not going to leave the banks. We're holding all the paper for three, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And that's when you say, if I have the health, we're going to get through this. And we did. I think it's just a mindset that you have a problem and you're going to think your way out of it. And then you'll work hard to execute. It's just, or do you wait for a government bailout or some (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. crazy thing like that? Not that PPP money isn't wonderful for a lot of businesses, but if you think somebody's going to come to your rescue, I think you'll be left in the dust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you mentioned you mentioned your husband and the together you have done a lot of things. You've done a lot of things separately, but before the show, we were talking about the new hotel you've put in. You also have a, a bridal business that you started and then combined with what you're doing. And you give back to the community in so many ways. You're there in Northern Kentucky, right across the river from Cincinnati and Covington. So tell me a bit about that. What's your philosophy about an entrepreneur's role in their community and in giving back to help others and support the community they're in? Well, I have felt, and my husband, Jim, he agrees that we've been blessed beyond belief and he had so many lucky breaks. If somebody needs help, we will help you. We've been there. We've done that. And we're more than willing to help. And then it's not just us. It's, it's Diane Combs who came and helped me set up three different computers. And it's our kids who worked for next to nothing when we started and you know, they, they believed in it and they were hard. They are hardworking, smart people. And then our son-in-law who started the hotel, he had the stomach to beg for money for, I mean, I think we had, we were looking for 20 mil, I think. And how do you do that? You go from one bank to another for two years. And I think he finally got the financing done on the 45th bank. You wouldn't know there's 45 banks in this area, but he went through every last one. So I guess it's a determination that it will be hard. But I guess if you don't struggle, you don't appreciate it. If you live on handouts and everything is given to you. And I've observed that with people who have inherited a lot of money. It's not always good. Sometimes it is, but I think the human condition, we're meant to struggle and we're meant to achieve. And when you achieve, it kind of gives you a confidence to go on to something a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that's certainly been true with Fabulous Furs, when Oprah put our code on, I had a little bit more confidence that, hey, if Oprah says we're okay, we're okay. (laughs) And when Neiman Marcus becomes our customer and when Saks becomes our customer, we're going to raise the bar. And now we call ourselves the world's finest. And I'm not the only one who designs our product today. Thank you, God, that... We have a staff of four designers, 
And they're so much more talented than I ever was. But I can tell them things that don't do that. Don't do that. That product, we, we tried that, you know, do this, mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. And so we all help one another. And believe me, it is a huge team effort. A person doesn't become the world's finest on their own power. It's lots and lots of failures, quite a few successes, but many, many more failures than successes. And surrounding yourself with good people, right? Oh, they, yes, yes. Yeah, that, what a great, so many great messages in that. So a couple of questions, Donna, what, is, what do you see ahead for the faux fur industry? And, and how are you all staying? How are you going to maintain this leading position? I mean, what kinds of thoughts do you have about that? I have many. <laughs> I have many thoughts. Well, it's now kind of unacceptable to have fur. At mm-hmm. least it's un- it's illegal in many, many states like mm-hmm. California. I think even New York has outlawed fur. And now many department stores like Neiman's, like Saks. Saks recently said we'll be out of the fur animal fur business, I think, by 2022, end of 22. Okay. You need more expensive coats, don't you? You need those $5,000 faux furs that will keep your revenue where you want it. We introduced a Lux collection, and you can see it on our website. It's L-U-X-E, our Lux collection. And we sell $1,400 faux fur coats. And they're very, very special. And they are very limited because if somebody's going to put a lot of money into something, they want it to be very exclusive. Mm-hmm. We can do exclusive. And so all the things that, you know, you learn along the way, just like limited edition tennis shoes or, or all these crazy things that people are willing to put money into. I can help with that. I can help. And we will do a better job and a more beautiful product than anyone else because we have the experience of so many people start a fake fur coat business and they don't really know what they're doing. And maybe they do. We're still number one. Yeah. We're still number one. And that's, I'm very grateful. Yes. Yes. Well, it's, it sounds like to me that you're always paying attention to trends and looking to see where the industry's going and, and you're right. Once you've got the experience and the reputation and the brand that you've built, it gives you some some advantage actually in staying there. But you just have to keep after it, right? You have to always oh, be watching. It, it's relentless. There will always be somebody copying you, watching what you're doing, doing it a little differently. Just maybe not even enough to be legal. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I've always said. Look, we'll be on to the next best thing. Don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah. And, so, and it's so far it's been true. We just keep doing our best and tr- stay out in front. That's that's really great. So I have to ask you, you and I are both mothers who have had careers. We both have that Midwestern work ethic and have worked really hard. Can you talk just a little bit about what it's been like to build this? business, which has required so much of your time and so much of your mental energy. How did you manage that and have such beautiful children who are now part of your business and grandchildren? Well, and- well Rebecca, you're ahead of me because you had children when you hit, you were probably a department head by mm-hmm. then. 
children at home. I didn't. I said, you know what? I want to be a full-time mom. And I was actually, I want to get these kids in high school and know that they're going to be fine without me hovering. (laughs) So I was 44 when I started Fabulous First because I knew it would take a tremendous amount of time and energy. So they were into high school. So God love you. (laughs) I I don't know how mothers do it. I, I really don't. But something's got to give. I think you can't be the most aggressive entrepreneur and the most nurturing mother all at the same time. And if you can do it, God love you. It's tough. It's really tough. And I I think one of the wonderful things about COVID is it allows moms to be home with their kids, maybe in a, maybe not full-time, but at least in a more hands-on way. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my daughter has two young children, as you and I've talked mm-hmm. about, and she right. she's work from home now, although her children are in a Montessori school, but she still mm-hmm. is available to take them, pick right. them up and be there if they're sick. So it's an advantage that I didn't necessarily have. So it's, it's great to that she has that. So do you have any advice for our young entrepreneurs? You know, I always like to ask before we end every show, like what would be the one piece of advice There are so many things in your story that are amazing, but if we had one piece of advice to leave them with, what would that be? Well, I would paraphrase Winston Churchill, who said, success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. And and because you will fail, I think, you know, so I was a writer and not always about sewing. I started profiling successful people, because I've always gravitated to, how did you do it? What did you do? And I can remember one fellow who was wildly successful saying, Donna, you'll have 98 failures and two successes. And that's all you need. Great advice. And your story is, I think, a perfect (laughs) example of an entrepreneur that continues to execute past failure and and your willingness to share that and sort of admit that you've had <laughs> had struggles along the way, I think is so generous. And so we appreciate so much your sharing today and spending time just telling us all about your story and kind of how you well, got it's, to this it's success. My, it's, it's my pleasure. And truly in parting, I believe our country is built on entrepreneurs. And if you're a you know, you're, you're thinking, what do I do? What do I do? Yeah, work for a corporation, see what it's like, learn a lot, learn everything you possibly can. And then if you start a business, know that it won't be easy. But think of Donna, <laughs> if she can do it, anyone can. And that's uh-huh. absolutely true. Without college, without money, without connections, you'll make them, you will. And if you're willing to put in the time and get an education, become an expert at whatever it is that you do. You can do that. Well, you're very humble, Donna, because you're an amazing, amazing role model. So thank you for that. Where can our listeners find out more about Donna Salyer's Fabulous Furs and where can they buy a fur? Well, maybe 4,000 <laughs> different places, but gosh, we have a website, of course, Donna Salyer or fabulousfurs.com. And we're on Instagram and we're on Facebook and all those good things. But I love seeing us on like when 
Paul Stanley, the kiss guy, when he's on his Instagram page wearing one of our coats, you know, or, or Miss USA. So, so we pop up in all kinds of places, in movies, in Broadway plays. And so you're, you're talking to the luckiest person in the world. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, we'll be on the lookout for the fabulous furs everywhere. So thank you, Donna. I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. If you would like to shop at Fabulous Furs, you can receive 10% off your purchase on any product. Just go to fabulousfurs.com and type in the code FAB1021 at checkout. That's FAB21 for 10% off any product at Fabulous Furs. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor. Factor.